Well, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me, please, to the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament, just a little bit uh, back from where we were in Timothy. To 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're reading today verses 13 to 17. Thessalonians and chapter 2 and verse 13 Paul says but we ought always to thank God for you brothers loved by the Lord because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the spirit and through belief in the truth he called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then brothers. Stand firm. And hold to the teachings. We passed on to you. Whether by word of mouth. Or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And God our Father. Who loved us. And by his grace gave us eternal encouragement. And good hope. Encourage your hearts. And strengthen you. In every good deed. And word. Please keep your Bibles open there. I wonder if you know who this is. Uh, His name is Chris. Uh, He's an elderly gentleman now, uh, but he has a very famous older brother. He is Mick Jagger's younger brother. Younger, as I say now, but uh, 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 he also is a musician. He has a a band called the Hedge Fund Band. But the difference is between Mick and Chris is the Hedge Fund Band aren't doing quite so well. And uh, this is being put out in the newspapers. And one of the problems, of course, is that everybody compares him to his more successful uh, older brother. And whether whether they like it or not, he is different. He sings differently and plays differently and his songs are different. But that has been a a bit of a hindrance to him in his musical career all his life, having a brother to be compared to. Well, I feel for him in that because uh, when I was growing up, I was often compared to uh, the boy who I used to sit next to in school. His name was Ross and he was a maths wizard. And I always tell people there's three types of people when it comes to maths, those who can add and those who can't. And uh, I'm definitely in the latter group. And so all the time I was hearing, why can't you be more like Ross? Why can't you be more like Ross? I I couldn't help it. It was the way I was. And it's a a terrible burden, isn't it, to be compared sometimes unhelpfully to other people. But here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, Paul is actually comforting the Christians by comparing them with the non-Christians who are going to be alive in the very last days before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, during what's called the tribulation period. In the passage just before, he's been talking about the rise of the Antichrist in the last days, and he's been talking about how people will be deceived by him when he comes. And he says in verse 11, For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, so that they will believe the lie 
And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. It's a very sobering passage uh, about, the Lord, about the Antichrist and about the last days. But in verse 13, Paul says a wonderful thing. He says, but... And he makes a contrast between the people in those days and the Thessalonican believers. He says, but we ought always to thank God for you. And he then makes a threefold comparison between those people and the Thessalonican Christians. And I trust those of us who know Christ as our Saviour and Lord today. And the threefold comparison has to do with their salvation, has to do with their steadfastness, and has to do with their strength. It's a beautiful contrast. And I want us to have a look at this today for both our comfort and our challenge. Because there are challenges for us in this passage if we are Christians. And it's especially Christians Paul's addressing. You'll notice the word brothers comes up in verse 13 and in verse 15. So it speaks very much to us if we know the Lord as our saviour. And Paul speaks, uh, as I've put it, under these three headings. He gives his praise for their salvation, his plea for their steadfastness, and his prayer for their strength. But these are the three things that are the contrast. Let's have a look at these things and uh, apply them to ourselves this morning. First of all, Paul begins with his praise for their salvation in verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you. In one of his books, Christian author Erwin Lutzer, who is a retired pastor now, says these wonderful words. He says, if we want to prepare for our final destination, i.e. heaven, we should begin to worship God here on earth. Our arrival in heaven will only be a continuation of what we have already begun. Praise is the language of heaven and the language of the faithful on earth. And he's absolutely right. And Paul was a great worshipper as well as a great preacher. And one of the things he praised God for was the salvation of the Thessalonians uh, who lived in the town of Thessaloniki uh, in Greece. And uh, he planted that church himself as we read in the book of Acts chapter 17. And he knew that it had been an act of God that they had been saved and that church had been planted. And so he praises God for their salvation. And he really gets quite detailed in the wonderful work of salvation that the Lord did in them. He tells how they were loved by God in verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord. Loved by the Lord. And what he's talking about here is God's eternal love for his people. Jeremiah in the Old Testament spoke about this with regards to Israel. And, and those of us who are believers have the right, I believe, to apply this to ourselves as well. Jeremiah 31 verse 3. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. And uh, that's the wonderful thing about being a Christian is that you realize you were loved by the Lord from eternity past. 1 John 4 verse 19 says we love him because he first loved us. 
And you know, I used to read the uh, Bible and I used to feel very jealous of Daniel because in Daniel 9.23, the angel comes and says, oh man, dearly beloved. And I thought, oh, I wish that was said about me. And then I'd read in the Gospel of John how John said he was the apostle whom the, the disciple whom the Lord loved. And I thought, oh, what a wonderful thing to be able to say, I'm the disciple whom the Lord loved. But then I hit this verse and I realized it's true for us if we do know the Lord. Brothers loved by the Lord. We've been loved by our great God. And that's such a tremendous comfort. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it like this in his book Mere Christianity. He said the great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins or our indifference and therefore it is quite relentless in its determination that we should be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us and whatever cost to him. That's a good quote. You know, sometimes we feel if we're having a good day, God loves me today. And if I'm having a bad day, God obviously doesn't love me today. But actually, it's not true. We've been loved by the Lord from eternity past. I believe that love is linked to what we call foreknowledge. as a word that's used in Romans chapter 8. And foreknowledge, those whom God foreknew. And the word foreknew, the word knew, when you find the word knowledge in the Bible, as somebody is known, it means they're loved. The, the King James Version said Adam knew his wife Eve. And he loved his wife Eve. And God knew Abraham. He loved Abraham. And foreknowledge is to be foreloved. And God loved us in eternity past. I have loved you with an everlasting love. So what a wonderful thing to be able to say about our brothers and sisters. And to be able to praise God for uh, in our own salvation if we know the Lord. Brothers, you are loved by the Lord. As Jude says, you're called, loved, and kept. But he praised God also that they were chosen by God in verse 13. Because he says, from the beginning, God chose you to be saved. Now, some of your translations will say, because he chose you as his first fruits to be saved. And uh, there's a difference in some of the uh, translations there uh, on which is the word. Um, I stick with the NIV. I think it is from the beginning God chose you to be saved uh, as opposed to the first fruits to be saved. But either are true. The Thessalonians were the first fruits of all the, the, the Christians that he, that he was writing to here were the first fruits of God's work in Thessalonica. But The point he's making here is God chose you to be saved. And this is a part of our salvation. And it's one of the greatest statements and clearest statements in the Bible of what we call predestination. The fact that God chose people to be saved. And Paul said this, from the beginning God chose you to be saved. Now, some people don't like this doctrine for some reason, but it's there. In black ink, in white paper, in your Bible, God chose you to be saved. And Paul was thanking God for this, for the Thessalonians. Now you may say to yourself, well, I I don't see how he can do that. Because how can you know somebody else has been chosen by God? Well, just keep your finger in the place and come back to 1 Thessalonians, the book before, and chapter 1. And see what Paul says at the beginning. Chapter 1 and verse 4. 
He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, there it is again, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep, with deep conviction. In other words, when they came and brought the gospel, the people responded to it. And then their lives afterward gave testimony to the Lord's work of grace in them. And that's how Paul could say, we know God has chosen you. But the point coming back here to 2 Thessalonians 2.13 is Paul is praising God for what he has done in this respect in their life. And so should we. You know what? None of us deserve to be chosen by God, do we? It's entirely by God's grace, undeserved kindness. Uh, and it's a wonderful thing that gives God the glory, not man. John MacArthur says this in his commentary on Colossians, the doctrine of election crushes human pride, exalts God, produces joy and gratitude to the Lord, grants eternal privileges and assurance, promotes holiness and makes one bold and courageous for one who has been chosen by God for eternal life has no need to fear anything or anyone. I agree. And I think that's Paul's point there in making that statement. He praises God that they have been chosen. They can have that assurance. That's why there's a contrast between them and the people who he's been talking about in the previous verses. And if you know yourself to be a believer today, you're trusting in Christ, then praise God that he has chosen you. If you believe today, it's because he did choose you. Acts 13.47 says all those who were appointed to eternal life believed. That's a wonderful thing to realise, isn't it? Lots of people suffer from lack of assurance. But if you believe, it's because you've been appointed to eternal life. That's great news, isn't it? You don't have eternal life because you've believed, but because you were appointed to eternal life, you believed. That's a wonderful thing. And we should praise the Lord for his grace. And then he goes on developing this doctrine of salvation and he says he chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the spirit. As we go, we're going to see that uh, uh, this is a Trinitarian matter, our salvation. He's already mentioned God the Father. Now he's mentioning God the Spirit and soon he's going to mention the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole Trinity is involved in our salvation. And he says that we've been chosen to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And in this respect, it's almost identical to what Peter says in the opening of his letter. If you just keep your finger in the place and turn with me to 1 Peter, just towards the, the end of the Bible a bit more. 1 Peter chapter 1 and uh, the opening verses. One Peter chapter 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, that means God's chosen ones, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, now listen carefully, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. 
And do you know when I used to uh, preach in the early days as an evangelist before I became a pastor, I used to love preaching the Trinity in salvation. I'd often use this verse. But it really annoyed me how Peter got the order wrong. Because what it really is is that God chose us so that we would believe and then God sanctifies us by his spirit. Because my understanding of sanctification was is after you get saved, God then sanctifies you and makes you holy. But Peter here gets the order wrong. And he says he has chosen us through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And it's the same thing back here in 2 Thessalonians 2, if you come back. He says it's through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So what's going on here? Well, the word sanctification has many meanings, actually, uh, that we don't normally use. But this is one of them. And it means to set something aside. I want you to imagine, okay, um, it's Heather's birthday coming up. And uh, I think to myself, you know what? I know what Heather would like. She would like a brand new Fiesta Red Stratocaster made by Fender. Uh, Hank Marvin issue uh, edition with gold hardware and Seymour Duncan pickups. That is what Heather would like. And uh, so very selflessly, I go down to the guitar shop in town and I see one in the window and I say to the man in the shop, I want to buy this, but I've got to go and get the money. Would you put it to one side for me? And the man would put it behind the counter. Now, when he puts that to one side, he's sanctifying it. It's set apart for me to purchase And in that sense, the Holy Spirit sets us apart for the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's follow-on from God's work of election. And it's a wonderful thing to realize that God did that for us. When we were unaware of it, God had that plan for us. I love that story of uh, Michelangelo who walked into, his, uh, 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 into a workshop once and saw a huge marble, block of marble for sale. And he said, I'm going to buy that block of marble. And he walked around it and he walked around it and they said, what are you doing? He said, there's an angel in there and I'm going to set him free. Now, he was buying it for the purpose of doing a work in it. And that's what God did with us, sanctified by God. What a wonderful, wonderful work of salvation this is. It's not so so much to it, isn't there? And then he goes on and he says that we're called by God. Sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. You see, it always leads to faith in Jesus Christ and putting our trust in him. And then he says in verse 14, he called you to this through our gospel. And Paul's referring there to the time that when he went to Thessalonica, he went there and preached Christ to them so that they could believe and be saved. And this is how the thing works out in our time on earth. God calls people through the preaching of the gospel. And when I stand here and I say to you, put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Come to him. God is giving a call to all of us to put our trust in him. But when somebody actually does that, it's evidence of what we call God's effectual call. 
there's a general call that goes to all people, but an effectual call that goes to the heart of the believer. If you want an illustration of that, think of Lydia on the banks of the river at Philippi, where Paul preached the gospel, and the Lord opened her heart to receive Christ. That's what it says. The Lord opened her heart. She believed because, not because she opened her heart to Jesus, the Lord opened her heart, and she had an effectual call from God to respond. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. He called you to this through our gospel, to believing on the Lord. What a sovereign work salvation is. And the final part is, is still future, but it's glorification. We're to be glorified with the Lord Jesus Christ. As he says at the end of verse 14, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a wonderful thing to realize that one day we are going to share the glory of our Lord Jesus. And the more you know about the Bible, the more amazing that is. Because, you know, in the Old Testament, God said that he will not share his glory with another. And yet here it says we're going to share the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that an astounding thing? Colossians chapter 3 tells us when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 is what we call the golden chain of salvation. And the final link in that chain is those who's justified, he also glorified. And it's a wonderful thing that God has saved us, not only from our sins, but to glory with our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to have a glorious character, a glorious body, and we will be in the glory with our Saviour. And there's two types of glory of God in the Bible. There's what we call his ascribed glory and his intrinsic glory. His ascribed glory is when we say we praise him. That's when we're ascribing glory to God. His intrinsic glory is the glory that is his, whether anybody praises him or not. He's glorious. Well, this isn't ascribed glory. It's not like, oh, John, you're wonderful. Nobody's going to be praising me. But I will be in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so will you if you're a believer. It staggers the mind, doesn't it? What a salvation God has brought us into. And so Paul praises God for this, for the believers, and says, don't worry, you're not going to be like those others who are are going to turn away and be deceived by the coming of the Antichrist. You're going to be safe because of the sovereign work of God for your salvation. And I just want you to be encouraged by that this morning if you are a believer. And if you're not a believer, to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, but how do I know if I'm saved? How do, I know if I, how do I know if I'm chosen? Well, as it said earlier, through belief in the truth. If you will believe, then you'll know that you've been chosen. It's very simple. All God asks you to do is to believe. He doesn't ask you to work out anything else. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will find it's been a wonderful act of God's grace. And then secondly, he moves on uh, to talking about their steadfastness. And we see in verse 15 his plea for their steadfastness after his praise for their salvation. He says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth 
or by letter. And Paul here is calling them to to be faithful as Christians uh, in the day and age that they were in. You see, the Christians in Thessalonica had been suffering two problems. uh, And in this letter, we see it. In chapter 1, they had been suffering persecution. And Paul tells them that God will avenge them uh, when the Lord Jesus comes. And in chapter 2, he tells them that they've been facing false teaching because they'd written to him a letter uh, asking about some questions which had arisen from a false letter claiming to be from Paul, which had been circulating in, in their midst. And so they'd been afflicted with these two things. And against that background, he pleads for them to be steadfast and not give way. Now this is very important in light of what's gone before about God's sovereign work of salvation. Matthew Henry puts it like this in his commentary. He says, he does not say you are chosen to salvation and therefore you may be careless and secure. But rather, he says, therefore, stand fast. And I want to say that that's absolutely true. And uh, predestination should not ever make us careless about our Christian walk. We are to be careful with our souls, like we were talking with the children. We're not just to be those who look after our bodies, but look after our souls. And we should be steadfast in serving the Lord and faithful in living for him. And actually, if you really have a grasp on predestination and and God's election, then that's what it will do for you. George Whitfield, a very famous preacher, actually in this part of the country, um, who was one of the leading um, Calvinists, as it's sometimes called in his day, somebody who strongly believed in predestination and saw amazing works of God through his preaching. People always say, if you believe in predestination, how can you preach the gospel? Well, he did, and he was the greatest preacher of the gospel since the apostles. So it doesn't work when you say it it counteracts the gospel. Uh, He saw great salvation, as did Charles Spurgeon. But in one of his sermons, he said this. He said, it is the doctrine of election that mostly presses me to abound in good works. He said, I am made willing to suffer all for the elect's sake because I know salvation does not depend on man's free will. But the Lord makes them willing in the day of his power and can make use of me to bring some of his elect home when and where he pleases. But I like that. He said it's it's his doctrine of election that makes him abound in good works. And that's what Paul is calling for here from the brothers. Stand firm. Be faithful. Be steadfast in these difficult days that you're in. And hold to the teachings. Hold on to the doctrines that he had given them, uh, which were in this letter and which he had given them by word of mouth when he had been preaching to them. And you'll notice if you have a a Bible with a footnote, it'll say, or traditions. Uh, Hold to the traditions. What does that mean, the traditions? Well, the traditions there is two views on this. One view is that because Paul was writing in the early 50s, this was perhaps before the earliest gospel was recorded and written and circulated. And so the life story of Christ was circulated by word of mouth. And he's saying, hold on to that. But I favour the view that when Paul talks about traditions, he means the practical things of our faith, like baptism and communion. These are the traditions, 
but they're, they're not unbiblical traditions. They're ones that are rooted in, uh, in Scripture, and they have to be shown practically how to do it. And this is what Paul did. But either way, Paul said, stand firm in these things and hold on to them. Hold on to them. Be a, a Christian who has a strong grip on the truth. The things that we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. And he pleaded for their steadfastness as a mark of the difference between those who were willing to do uh, wrong in the previous passage. I wonder whether or not that describes you as a Christian today. Whether or not you're trying to be a steadfast Christian. Now I know all of us can do better. The biggest room in all the world is the room for improvement. But are you trying to be a steadfast Christian? Are you trying to stand firm for the Lord? If you're not, I want to urge you to think again about whether you know the Lord. Check it, you do. And if you do, then press in to a faithful Christian lifestyle. Sometimes people say, well, where do you begin? I would say begin with the little things. Begin with the little things. Start by saying grace before you eat your meal. Start by reading your Bible every day and praying. Start by coming to church on Sunday. You know, I've just been reading a book by Joel Beek, which is a book of testimonies of God's work. And I was uh, amazed to see the first story in the book was about a man who lived in the city of Bath in England. And his name was William Reed. And he says that many years ago there lived a barber in the city of Bath in England. And uh, this man had been running a barber shop flat out, earning lots of money down in the town centre. And uh, apparently it began to prick on his conscience that he was open on Sundays and uh, gathering in as much business as he could. And he, he began to feel this wasn't the best way for his Christian walk. So he went to talk to his pastor about it and he said to him, what do you think I should do? He said, you know, I need the business and if I stop working on Sundays, then then I'll lose out. And the pastor said, look, it's good for you to come to church. You need to meet with the Lord's people and study and worship and it's the best and right way to go. So trust God to take care of your needs. Well, the man was worried about that. He thought, if I close Sundays, then I'm going to lose business. But he went forward and prayed about it. And he put up on the Saturday night a sign that said, closed Sundays. And he tried to trust God to take care for him. But you know what happened? Some of his customers got offended and walked out on him. And business nosedived like he'd been worried. In fact, it nosedived to the point where he lost his lovely shop, his very fashionable shop, and he had to take up rent in a dingy basement where he hardly had enough business to get himself bread to eat. Anyway, one Saturday evening, just as it was getting dark, a strange gentleman who had just arrived by coach asked for a barber, and one of the drivers pointed him to the cellar across the street. He came in in a hurry and asked for a quick shave and a haircut. He said because it would be too late at night for him later to get one and he didn't want to get one tomorrow because it was Sunday and he didn't want to do it on a Sunday. And this touched William Reed's heart. He felt, this is a man like me. And it actually brought a tear to his eye. And, uh, 
the difficulty was, it was later in the evening, time was pressing on, and he was losing light. And he said to the man, is there any chance you could lend me a penny? I need to buy a candle, otherwise I can't shave you in the dark. It would be a bloodbath. And so the man was, felt sorry for him, he was so poor, but he, he gave him a penny to buy a candle, and he came back, and he started to shave him. Anyway, afterwards... Uh, the man got up and he'd been thinking about William Reed and he said, it seems to me, my friend, that there is something unusual in your past and I'd like to hear about it, but I really must go now. Here is some money for your services. When I come back this way, I would like to visit you again. What is your name? And he said, William Reed. And the man looked startled and he said, William Reed, are you from the west of England? Yes, sir, he said, from Kingston, near Taunton. What was your father's name? Thomas. Hmm. Did he have a brother? Yes, sir, one after whom I was named. But he went to the East Indies, and as we have never heard of him, we suppose him to be dead. The man said, you must come with me. I am going to see a man who claims to be William Reed of Kingston near Taunton. If you can prove that he is an imposter and you are the person I am seeking, I have some amazing news for you. Your uncle died recently and has left an immense fortune, which I will hand over to you as soon as I'm sure that you are the William Reed I am seeking. And they went and they were able to prove it. But you know what? If that man hadn't been faithful and closed his shop, and actually gone downhill in poverty, down to that little basement, he wouldn't have been in that place, he wouldn't have had to ask the money for the candle, and it wouldn't have led to that conversation, which led to him having that fortune. God honoured him for his steadfastness to the Lord. And I want to encourage you to do the same. I can't promise you God will honour you with money. I can't promise you that. But I promise you this, it'll be worth it at the end of the day, to live faithfully for the Lord. It always is. And so Paul said, be steadfast in your walk. The third thing he gave here was a prayer for their strength in verses 16 to 17. He closes this passage by saying, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts And strengthen you in every good deed and word. Years ago there was a Puritan pastor by the name of Richard Baxter. And uh, he wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor. Which is uh, a really good book for pastors to read. It's 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 a very spiritual book. But he said this. Prayer must carry on our work as pastors as well as preaching. He that preacheth not heartily to his people prayeth not earnestly for them either. And I think that's true. The pastor who's going to preach to his congregation needs to pray for them. And I pray for you as well as I know you pray for me. But that's what Paul did here for the Thessalonians. He prayed for them. And his last passage here when he's making this contrast is a contrast in their strength. And uh, he prays for them to have strength. Now, the background he gives in verse 16, when he says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. And isn't it interesting, by the way, that's the order he puts it. That's the opposite way around to the normal way of putting it in the Trinity. But they're co-equal and co-eternal. 
So let's remember that. Uh, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us, that's what we were talking about earlier, and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, the things we were talking about earlier, uh, about God's sovereign work leading to glory and salvation. And then he says, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and work. So what he's calling for and praying for is them to have strength, strength in themselves and strength in their service. Strength in themselves when he says that he wants God to encourage their hearts, comfort their hearts, strengthen their hearts. You know, so often what we need is not uh, an energy drink to make us strong. What we need is a little bit inside the deepest part of our hearts to make us strong, to face a situation. Let me explain this better, perhaps, by an illustration. Some of you get the Open Doors prayer letter for the persecuted church. Well, earlier this year, they sent out their list of the uh, top, I can't remember, top 100 countries for persecution. And number eight on that list was Iran. And this gentleman here, his name is Ali, who had been put in prison in Iran for being a Christian. And this is what he said. He said, when we were in solitary confinement, the only thing that strengthened us was prayer. Only God can go to those dark places and dungeons and be strength for his children. That's what Paul's talking about. I pray God will encourage you in your hearts, help you in the inner person to have strength for what you're going through. And what a thing to pray for each other as well. Pray for that strength to be given to God's people. You know, somebody who's going through a difficult time, going through a bereavement, is battling with sin, somebody who's uh, uh, facing an operation, somebody who's emotionally low, pray for that encouragement in their hearts, in the inner person. That's where they need strength. And God can help them. But also... In every good deed and word. This is strength in their service. This made me laugh. I saw a, a, a little cartoon in Reader's Digest. I know I keep going about Reader's Digest. But uh, it's a, a picture of a, a boat. And I'm describing this for those who may be on, online later looking at this, listening to this. But a picture of a boat crashing on the rocks next to a lighthouse. And the lighthouse has at the top an, a low energy light bulb in it. And we all know the truth, don't we? You know, those low-energy light bulbs, when they came out, they weren't as bright as the old-fashioned ones. And uh, low energy can lead to a low, bright light. And we don't want that as Christians, spiritually, do we? And so he prays for God to strengthen us in every good deed and word. Actually, the order should be the other way around, according to the Greek, and as it is in the King James, every good word and deed, because we're to speak the gospel as well as do good works for others. So let's be those who pray for that for each other as well. It's, again, one of the things that will make us stand out as different to others because we have his spiritual strength in our lives. When I was doing a youth camp many years ago, uh, I was talking to the pastor of the church and uh, I was doing the ministry at this youth camp for another church. It was a church in Guildford. And uh, it wasn't actually the pastor, sorry, it was one of the youth pastors, one of the youth leaders there. And he was 
sharing with me about his own daughter who had become a Christian. And she was really struggling in her Christian walk. He said, it's so good that she's here. He said, we're really praying for her. And I, I said, well, what's the problem? She sa- he said, she said to me, she said, Dad, I want to be saved. She said, but I don't want to be different. And isn't that a battle for young people, you know, in school? I, I don't want to be different. Well, you know, the fact is, if you're saved, you already are different. <laughs> because the Lord has saved you. Salvation has already gone to work in you. And he can make you steadfast as you walk with him. And he can give you strength. And we need to pray for that difference for all our young people who know the Lord and our own lives as well. And pray that it shines out more and more. Let's be contrasting Christians even this week. Let's sing our final hymn, shall we, this morning. Who